the book of Ruth. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So the man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live in a resident foreigner in the region of Moab, along with his wife and his two sons. Now the man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi. His two sons were Mahalan and Kilion. And they were of the clan of Ephrath from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the region of Moab and they settled there. Now, immediately we're told that it's the time period of the judges, and we've already talked about that. That was a very dark time period politically, economically, socially, morally, in every kind of a way. But to make matters worse, there's also a famine in the land. We all know that people will, are willing to do anything when there's no resources. We've seen enough movies. We've watched enough news. We've maybe even seen it. You've probably seen it at Black Friday. People are incredibly cruel and evil and selfish when there are no resources for everybody. And people will steal, they will break in, they'll commit crimes just to stay alive. And they're already doing that before the famine came along. And so this is a very, very, very dark time period. And the irony here is, is that they live in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means the house of bread. Bet means house, and Laham means bread. And since the house of bread has a famine, the city that is supposed to be a source of blessing no longer has a blessing. And this harkens back to Genesis, where God calls Abraham to go to a land. I mean, remember, famines play a huge role in the biblical stories, not just in a historical sense, but in a theological, thematic sense as well. And so God calls Abraham into the land of Canaan and says, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And Abraham sees that there's a famine in the land. And he says, thank you, God. And he doesn't stop except one time to make a sacrifice. And he keeps passing through the land and goes straight on to Egypt because of his lack of trust in God. Now, to Abraham's credit, he didn't really know God that well at that moment. And he had no idea that God could take care of him in the midst of a famine. And so he just kept on moving through. (coughs) And then he learned that if God can control and defeat the most powerful emperor in the entire world at that time and provide him so many blessings, then maybe he can take care of a famine too. And that's where Abraham's faith actually begins to grow after that event. Yet here we have a man who's been a part of Israel and has the word of God and he's seen and known the stories. And we know he probably does because, I mean, even Jephthah knew them. And yet he is not trusting God to provide for him. And he's moving out of the land of, to outside the land. Now, if you're just reading the book of Ruth, that may not throw up any red flags for you. But if you read in the context of everything, every single time somebody leaves the land, it's not good. The first time we see the leaving of the land is the Garden of Eden. And it's not good. And remember, we talked about this moving eastward direction kind of a thing. And when people move eastward, it's always walking away from God or walking away from his blessings or walk away from his covenant. You see this theme over and over again. And so you have Abraham who's leaving the land and that's not good. You have Jacob who's leaving the land that's not good. And then Jacob leaves the land again later at the end of Genesis, but that's only because God told him that. But remember, even when they leave the land, even under the instruction of God, they still end up in slavery. And it's not until they come back to the land that there's blessings. And we see this theme over and over and over again of people leaving the land. And so what we kind of hear is that there's a lack of trust here from Elimelech. There's a lack of trust that God will provide for him. And he's outside the land. And being outside the land means outside the covenant promises. 
However, I don't think the narrator wants you to dwell on that point for too long because he goes over it very quickly, unlike other times he dwells on it a lot, and he immediately goes on and tells you that his name is Elimelech. And Elimelech means my God is king. In this book, names are very important. In most books, a name or two might be very important, and a lot of the other ones are just kind of not. But every single name seems very important here. And the fact that he is called Elimelech, my God is, or my, um, my God is, is my king, and the fact that Naomi means pleasant, means that they're, they're supposed to be seen in a positive way. I don't think we should see this as absolute rebellion against God or lack of faithfulness totally to the covenant in a way that Jacob was, but more in the sense of where Abraham was still a godly person even though he disobeyed God multiple times in his life. So I think the narrator wants you to know that Elimelech overall is a godly man. I mean, Ruth has got to figure out about God somehow. (laughs) Yet at the same time, at this moment, he's not trusting in God. As a result of not trusting in God, he ends up experiencing death outside the family or outside the land. He experiences death outside the land. So notice outside the land, nothing goes well. But the minute they come back from the land, all some blessings are there again. And so this is the theme that God is kind of emphasizing here, but I don't think we're supposed to read too much into his character of why he did this, because the Bible doesn't really give us any hint of that. They go to the land of Moab. Now, Moab is directly east of Bethlehem. So once again, he's moving eastward, which is not a good direction in the Bible. He have two sons, Mahalan and Kilion, which means weak and frail. <laughs> there is a possibility that where in this time period infant mortality rates are very high kids are often very weak at a young age and in the time period of the judges and a famine that might have affected their growth and perhaps their parents named them that in such a way that would seem really weird and foreign to us that why would you ever name your kid that but Remember, they name people based on not sounds, but on character or things that describe that kid. And so maybe it was more of a descriptor for them than anything about the kid. We don't know. The other possibility is that this isn't really the real names. That God has changed a few letters to change the meaning to something else. And that's not uncommon. There's many times in the Bible where we know that that's not really the real name. But God chooses to change their name by a few letters or something to switch it to something completely different in order to communicate something about what he's, the story is. And so this becomes a foreshadow that they're going to die eventually. Now, once again, I think we addressed this a while ago, but that doesn't mean that God is deceiving you because we're familiar with stories where we've changed the names of the people in order to protect the identity of the innocent. And nobody thinks, this is a lie. This is unjust. I can't trust anything else. But at the same time, we've also talked about the fact that nicknames are very common in the ancient world. And people will often collect multiple names over time and, and based on their character. And the reality is, God can give you a name anytime he wants. He created you, he gave you life, and he wants to change your name to fit your character a little bit better for the sake of his story. He can do that if he wants. And if we can give people random nicknames based on stupid things from high school, then God can give you a nickname that actually fits a theological story where he's trying to make a point about who he is. 
So this may not be their real original names, but rather their literary nicknames that God gave them for the sake of a story. So they're from the clan of Ephrath, which we know that they're from Judah, and they're from Bethlehem. This becomes significant because Bethlehem is an incredibly insignificant town. It is the nobody backward town that they, nobody really talks about. But by the end of this book, it sets you up in a genealogy that by chapter 16 of Samuel, Bethlehem is going to become a big deal because David comes from there. This is the very beginning of what is going to make Bethlehem a significant town that everybody's going to know. And every time you go to Jerusalem, everybody wants to visit, even though there's nothing to see anymore. Sometime later, verse 3, Naomi's husband Elimelech died. And so she and her two sons were left alone. So her sons married Moabite women. We're in the time period of the judges. Horrible tragedy. It's a famine. Horrible tragedy. They're in a foreign land where foreigners don't really value each other very well. Horrible tragedy. And now the father of the household has died. Horrible tragedy. They're left alone. And Elimelech has no kids. Nobody continues his line. And a book where God values lines incredibly, his line is going to die out. And he's going to become no more. Yet there is hope because he has two sons. And they're of marriageable age. So they get married to Moabite women. One named Orpha and the other Ruth. Now they marry foreign women. The Bible never ever strictly forbid the marrying of foreign women. Except for the Canaanites and the Amorites and that kind of stuff, people inside of the land of Canaan. But he never forbids the marrying of other people as long as they become a part of the Abrahamic covenant, as long as there's a faith demonstrated there. The only thing that would make this wrong is if their faith was not converted to Yahweh. But being a foreigner is not, so don't read any alarms on that like you would with Samson being attracted to a Philistine. However, we don't know where they are in their faith. And that's not really mentioned. The name of Orpha means to turn the neck. As in to turn the neck and walk away. Or, or I'm not putting up with this stuff anymore. And that foreshadows the fact that she will eventually turn her neck and walk away from Ruth or Naomi in her time of need. And Ruth's name means companion or friend. And that totally fits because... In the midst of learning about Ruth's name, we're going to be told that, but, but Ruth clung to Naomi. And she became a friend and a companion. So these names are foreshadowing their character and their actions that are coming later. So they continue to live there in about 10 years. Now, we don't know exactly if the 10 years means they continue to live there total after Elimelech's death or 10 years after the marriage to the Moabite women. It's, it's a difficult um, Hebrew structure to know that. A lot of scholars tend to lean towards 10 years after the marriage. However, here's the thing. The Bible never ever mentions the fact that Ruth is barren. It's very unlikely that a woman who is not barren would go 10 years without having kids. Even in our culture, we tend to wait much longer to have kids, but 10 years is a rare thing. In that culture, you're pretty much getting pregnant within the first year of your marriage because that's the point of getting marriage, married in that culture. And it never says anything. And in the Bible, where it's so often 
Manoah's wife was barren, Rachel was barren, Rebecca was barren, and Sarah was barren, and and um, um, Elizabeth was barren, and and you see this, Hannah was barren. You see this over and over again. If she was truly barren, why not put that in there? And it never says that when she married Boaz, God opened her womb like he does so many other places. The other thing that's interesting is that Boaz calls her a very young girl all the time. And so most likely what's happening here is that Ruth is, you get married around the age of 14 years old, 13, 14 in this culture. Now, I know that feels like anathema to us from this culture. But remember, in that culture, they were way more mature because, one, they had to grow up a lot faster working on farms and taking care of people and bigger families and working constantly. Two, they weren't Americans. Three, they didn't invent a thing called teenagers. And four, they didn't celebrate immaturity and prolonging responsibility. And I tell my students this, you will never, ever, ever truly be mature until you're responsible for your own life. That's when you start maturing. I mean, you can mature and be getting there over time, but you, and you don't know who you really are until you're fully responsible for your own life in every sense of the sense. And so when you're doing that at age 12, 11 years old in these kind of cultures, you grow up really fast. And I know America mourns the loss of childhood, but that thing didn't exist really that much in the ancient world. And I'm not saying that's wrong or bad, it's just different, and maybe it is, and I don't know, and I have no authority, but that's the way it was. And then on top of that, I really truly, now, as a school teacher, I'll just let you know, I do not encourage my kids to do this, and I tell them, you have to absolutely wait. In fact, I tell my kids, you shouldn't even get married or date until after college, that's my opinion. (laughs) So, for multiple reasons, so. My advice always is don't even bother with dating until one, you're responsible for your own life long enough that you can grow up. Two, you can figure out who you are because it's hard enough to figure out your own self, let alone somebody else, and that you're at least on your path to wherever God wants you to be. But that's this culture. In the ancient world, I think there's a reason why God made you go through puberty at a certain age. Why in the world is a woman's body ready to have kids at the age of 13, 14, 15 years old, and then God's like, yeah, but wait 15 more years. Struggle with your sexuality. Struggle with your puberty drive. Struggle with the attraction with the opposite sex and constantly have this ability to have kids, but I don't want you to do it. I just gave it to you to mess up your life. I really think the reason God gave your body to develop into having kids is because he meant you to have kids, because he knew that you were ready for it because that's the way he wanted the culture to be. And now we have all these kids who are struggling with sexual temptations and desires and they got all this happening in their body and they don't know what to do with it because they're not ready to get married until their 20s or 30s because of the way that our culture is designed. So I think our culture has actually screwed us over in that area. And I still tell the kids to wait because of the culture we live in. But I say, unfortunately, it sucks to be you and me that we then suffer with this struggle because our culture is so jacked up. But that's my opinion. They were more responsible, and their bodies were ready for it, and she was young. And most likely, she's probably still young when she meets Boaz. And it could be that she didn't have kids because her husband died so soon. And I don't know, but I think there is something just that, that she's still such a young girl, which emphasizes this relationship all the more.
So they lived for about 10 years, and then Naomi's two sons, Mahalon and Kilion, also died. This is just, your heart breaks for Naomi. This is just death and death and death and death. And now she is a woman without a husband, without sons, without brothers, without a father. In a culture that does not value women very well, in the Moabite culture, in the time period of the judges, she's completely defenseless. So the woman was left alone, bereaved of her two children, as well as her husband. So she decided to return home for the region of Moab, from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-laws. Because while she was living in Moab, she'd heard that Yahweh had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine by providing an abundant crops. Now notice the use of Yahweh. She realizes the famine's over with, and she decides to go home. Because being home among your own kinsmen is way better than being alone, a woman alone in a foreign culture. And even then, in the time period of the judges, there's no guarantee that she's going to be safe even at home. That's the end of the scene, and we move on to the next scene. Now, as she and her two daughters-in-law began to leave the place where she had been living in the return to the land of Judah, Naomi said to her daughter-in-laws, Listen to me. Each of you should return to your mother's home. May Yahweh show you the same kind of devotion, chesed, that you have shown to your deceased husbands and to me. May Yahweh, notice the use of the name Yahweh, enable each of you to find security in the home of the new husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept loudly. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So notice she uses the name Yahweh, and she uses it in the right theological way. So there is a faith there. So she tells her daughters that they should go back. It should go back to the land of Moab because it is much easier for a Moabite woman to find a husband among Moabites than a Moabite woman to find a husband among an Israelite, especially maybe not too long ago, Eglon, the Moabite king, had been oppressing and attacking the Israelite people that Ehud delivered them from. And not too long ago, Moab refused them entry through their land as they were trying to enter the promised land. Moab has not been nice to Israel. And we all know that when a country is not nice to us, Japanese, Germans, during those time periods, we tend to mistrust even the American-born Germans and Japanese and stuff, let alone somebody who's not even Israelite-born and a part of the culture, in a time period where we're already suspicious of you because you worship different gods, and they're very territorial. So this is not good. But Naomi replied, they said, we will go with you. Naomi replied, go back home, my daughters. There's no reason for you to return to Judah with me. I am no longer capable of giving birth to sons who might become your husbands. Like, maybe the only husband that might have a chance of wanting to marry you is a kid that I raise. But I'm too old to give birth to a kid. Go back home, my daughters, for I am too old to get married again. And even if I thought that there was hope that I could get married tonight and conceive sons, surely you would not want to wait until they are old enough to marry. And surely you will not remain unmarried all that time. No, my daughters, you must not return from, with me, for my intense suffering is too much for you to bear, for Yahweh is afflicting me. Now that last phrase, Yahweh is afflicting me, do not take that to like anti-Yahweh. One, in the ancient world, 
they had a more of a theologically and theologically correct idea that Yahweh is responsible for everything. And two, lots of people say lots of things when they're grieving that they don't really mean. So she tells him, go back. Now, here's your first act of chesed. Naomi is going to go back to her home. Even though she was going to be among kinsmen, that doesn't mean that they're going to value her and take care of her. She's an older woman who has nothing to contribute to the culture in the way that they would think. She is not young enough to work the fields and really be helpful. We know that because she doesn't work the fields in the next couple chapters. And it's a time period of the judges where they're not really looking out for women in any kind of a way. It would be much better for her to have two young women who can help work in the fields and help provide for her than for her to be completely alone in her old age where the culture may not take care of her. And it's far more beneficial. Most likely what's going to happen is she's going to go back home and she's going to die of starvation because nobody's going to be taking care of a widow that has been cursed by God because every male in her life has died in the time period of the judges. And she is afraid for her daughters-in-laws that they are going to be abused or mistreated or killed or whatever in a foreign land that does not value foreigners and does not value women without husbands or fathers or brothers in the time period of the judges. It would be far more to her benefit to take them along. And yet she knows when she sends them away, she is guaranteeing her death. But she does it because she loves them more than her own life. She is willing to literally die of starvation in her own land. But at least she'll die in her own land for the sake of keeping her daughter-in-laws alive. Her daughter-in-laws. Because we all know how that joke goes in the American culture. So that they can marry their own people who are more likely to accept them. That's Hesed. That's Hesed because she's facing certain death without them. She might die even with them, but she has a better chance of not with them. And that's an incredible act of chesed. Verse 14, again they wept loudly, then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, turned her neck, and walked away. But Ruth clung tightly to her. Those two words are very powerful images. Clinging tightly, there is a, I am one with you. And she's actually going to say that in her words that are following. Look, your sister-in-law. So Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law back home. Now notice that she says she's going back to her land, her people, and her God. Now here's where Ruth's very powerful theological statement comes in. But Ruth, this is in contrast to her God. But Ruth replied, Stop urging me to abandon you, for wherever you go, I will go. We are one and the same. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people. Now, practically speaking, will that really truly maybe happen? No. I mean, we know the story and it will. But culturally, practically, that's unique. And your God will become my God. 
Now this says something that even in the land of the Moabites, even in their lack of trust of God coming to Moab, and even though she has every reason to be bitter against God after death, 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 Naomi still lives such a godly, faithful life to Yahweh that a Moabite woman seeing that, and one woman only, because nobody else in Moab is doing this, enough that she's willing to change her gods. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may Yahweh punish me severely if I do not keep my promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. Now her professional faith says, I will be buried in your land as well. Now you understand the way the ancient people think. Not necessarily the, 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 Jew, the Israelites, though they might because they're easily influenced by their culture. But in the ancient world, they believe that their gods can only control their region. And that their gods have no power outside of their region or outside of their land. Unless they become powerful enough that they send their people over and conquer that land and begin to control it. But they don't conquer Israel and they don't control Israel. And so if Ruth dies outside of the land of Moab, her gods not only will not raise her into the afterlife, and I don't mean physical resurrection, but a spiritual, not only will they not because she abandoned the covenant land of their gods, but they are incapable of rising her. And if Yahweh is a pagan god, only because they view Yahweh as just another pagan god because Israel is doing a crappy job of testifying to his uniqueness, they believe that Yahweh will not raise her into the spiritual realm because she hasn't been faithful or loyal to Yahweh in any kind of way. So why would he do that? So she is literally damning herself potentially to eternal darkness of her soul. And what she's saying is, this is huge. I so believe in your God, and I so want to make your God my God, that I'm willing to take the risk that he is real and that he will raise me into the spiritual realm because I'll be buried in his land. That means she actually believes that Yahweh will and want to, which says something about his character to her. And not only that, the one reason she also says your people will be my people is because her people will no longer be her people. The minute you leave that God, you've lost your people. Because where your God and your religion is a part of everything, unlike Americans, it shapes everything that you do, your dress, your music, your culture, your ancestry. They believe very wholeheartedly that if you reject the God and the religion, you're rejecting them and everything. And we see this with a lot of Hindus and Muslims who convert and Buddhists who convert and they're completely shunned by their families and they become dead to them in a lot of ways. And so she literally is giving up everything to go to a foreign land where she most potentially will be mistreated. And so here is the second incredible act of Hesed that Ruth is willing to risk certain death at the hand of foreigners who hate her and risking placing herself in the hands of a God that may not raise her into the afterlife for the sake of taking care of Naomi, her mother-in-law. She knows that there's a good chance that as a woman without husband, father, brothers, and a foreign land in the time period of the judges, that she is young and will be killed or misused or sold. And that all of her efforts to take care of Naomi are completely empty. Yet she's willing to take the risk for her love. And so both of them are willing to risk certain death for the sake of the other. 
And in this dark, 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 depressing chapter of death, there's this incredible beauty of love and community and self-sacrificing for the sake of other people. This is what it means to be a follower of God. This is what it means to be a follower of God. They're trusting themselves more into the hands of their God than they are their culture. The lawyers, the doctors, the politics, the stability, the low crime rate, whatever things that we trust ourselves to be safe and secure. So the two of them journeyed together. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to dissuade them, her. So the two of them journeyed together until they arrived in Bethlehem. So they're back in the land, a new scene. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole village was excited about their arrival. The women in the village said, can this be Naomi? So they're actually excited. They remember she was such a part of the community before they left that they're excited to see her return. So there's a positive light there. But she replied to them, don't call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. Because the sovereign one has treated me very harshly. I left here full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty-handed. Why do you call me Naomi, seeing that Yahweh has opposed me and the sovereign one has caused me to suffer? Now, once again, don't read too much of an anti-Yahweh thing there, or I'm angry with Yahweh. There might be a little bit of that, and you can't blame her. She is only human, after all, despite her faith. But at the same time, remember, even Joseph said, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, meaning that God made me suffer. God made me go into slavery. God made me be betrayed. They have a very much idea that God makes everything happen. The question is not whether he's treated them harshly or whether he's allowed this to happen or not. The question is they still believe that he's good in the midst of it. And that's foreign to us. If somebody says that God did this to me, we immediately assume, no, no, he didn't. God doesn't do, but theologically speaking, they're right. The question is, do they believe that God is good, even though he's doing this to me? And we do believe that Naomi does believe that because of her actions that come later. Now, here's the irony. She says that I returned full, or I left full, and I returned empty. What's the irony about this? Ruth has sacrificed everything to be with her and is standing by her side. She's not empty. Literary speaking, that's an irony. But practically speaking, you still can't blame her because she did lose her husband and her kids. And I have no idea what it's like to lose both a spouse and your children. And even though Ruth is there and she is incredible sacrifice and she's not alone, I can't, she still probably feels very empty and very grieving. And you, you can't rob her of her grief. Don't rob her of her grief and say, oh my gosh, how can you ignore Ruth? What the heck is wrong with you? And the answer to you is, is why are you robbing her of grief? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you have to let her grieve. The other thing too is, lots of people say lots of things that they don't really truly believe when they're grieving. Lots of people say, how could God do this to me? Why is God against me? And in that moment, they're grieving. Of course we say that things. The Psalms are full of that. Some of the most godly men and women writing the Psalms are saying, God has abandoned me. God has turned away from me. David says, you've forsaken me. 
But the end of the psalm is like, oh, that's not really true, though, because I trusted you and you're always there, da-da-da-da-da. Because we say a lot of things that are not theologically accurate when we're grieving. And so you need to give them some time to grieve, let them say the things. The time when they're grieving is not to correct their theology. You don't say, no, no, you don't really believe that. What's wrong with you? Look at all that God's doing. The time when they're grieving is just to keep your mouth shut and just grieve with them. And so Ecclesiastes says there's time to grieve with those who grieve and to celebrate with those who celebrate. So Ruth does that. She's silent. So Naomi returned, accompanied by her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who came back from her own region of Moab, and now they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This scene begins with moving out of the land of famine and experiencing death. And it begins, ends with, as they return back to the land, Ruth is with her, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And that last, see, this book ends on an incredibly negative note. This is absolutely depressing. If this is a movie, you'd be weeping your eyes out right now. <laughs> it is absolutely depressing to watch her go through this. Yet there's one tiny little glimmer of hope. Ruth is with her in the midst of the barley harvest. But that's all that the narrator gives you in this act. And so the curtains close, and everybody's crying, everybody's depressed, everybody's wondering why they spent money for this depressing thing. And yet as the curtains close, there's one tiny little light shining on the stage to give you hope that the next act might be a little bit brighter. 